faith is shaking, your faithful still. These temporary trials, no match for who you are. Oh, here in the garden, I'm waking up. My fear cannot stand to your endless love. Oh, Spirit, your power, you will provide. Strength when I am praising. In the waiting, though the pain don't seem to go away, it's your love that's always working all things for my good.
can't find five, six people to tell them that you love them. Go just tell them, I love you. Oh, good to see you. Go say hi. Welcome to Capital City Christian Church. My name is Logan. I'm one of the elders here. This is my lovely wife, Mackenzie. Good morning. Glad you're here. And if this is your first time here, yes, Huey Lewis is a worship leader. So now you know. Okay. Uh, we're going to dive into just a few <laughs> announcements before we uh, dig deep into today's sermon. Yeah. So if you're totally digging the Huey Lewis vibes to start the service, come back next week. We're going to have the congregational meeting there might be some Huey Lewis, there might be some jams, maybe not, I don't know. But congregational meeting, that's for all of us that call this place home to be able to make sure that we are still um, aware of the work that we're doing to take care of our community here and outside of here as well. If you need a packet, they are out at the Welcome Hub. Again, that's going to be after the services next week. Now, speaking of taking care of the community, we have kicked off the Feed the Need campaign today. Hopefully you brought some canned meat. Uh, next week, uh, we're uh, going to be bringing in beans. Uh, we hear that they are good for your heart, so make sure to, uh, to bring those in next week. Isn't he fun? Um, also, it is November, and we are making sure that we are taking care of our community. Um, this time of year kind of gets a little rough. We want to continue to nudge people towards Jesus, and a really great way to do that in Thanksgiving month is to give thanks. So I know it's really November. But if you see up here, we are going to be doing thank you notes. So please grab some thank you notes, send them out to the community, love on people um, in this time of the year. So there are two types of people in this world. There are those that are right and those that are wrong. And it boils down to one question. November 1st kicks off what season? Christmas. Christmas. You all are all wrong, okay? Hallmark is also wrong, okay? Today, wrong. apparently, is they're showing Christmas uh, Hallmark movies now. Yep. And the thing about Christmas Hallmark movies, they really should have just made one. No. Because they are all the same, okay? No, 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 and no, no, And we're no, going to no, prove no. it. We're going to prove it. So on the screen, there are going to be three posters of Hallmark Christmas movies. I have not seen these posters. I have not looked at them. Mackenzie chose them. I have no idea, and, and I'm in a church standing on stage, so I'm not lying. I have not <laughs> seen what these are. I'm going to tell you what the plot is just by looking at the picture, and then and she's going to And I'm going to tell you what plot. it actually is. All right, let's see the first one. A royal Christmas. That's a good one, right? So uh, you, you chose the weird ones. All right, uh, I can already tell. 
Uh, so Royal Christmas, uh, he uh, is British. She is an American uh, that, um, you know, she, she had a successful career in New York. She lost nope. her job. Philadelphia. She was going to go back to her small town. He was there as well visiting because he owns a Christmas tree farm. He does not. And uh, <laughs> because of that, they fell in love there, and uh, now they're married, and she's a princess. He is a prince. From a European country. She is from Philadelphia, which is different, which uh, is a big city. It's a train right um, away. She is the only daughter of a tailor, well known. Uh, he keeps his um, royalty a secret from her until she falls in love. He takes her home for Christmas. Mom's yep. not happy about it. Uh, brings the ex-girlfriend back. Yeah. I can't uh, tell you then. You're going to watch it. Megan and what's-his-face. Uh, yeah, that's uh, we know what that is. All right, let's see the next one. Enchanted Christmas. Oh, wow. Okay, so uh, she was a dancer that went to Juilliard, failed out uh, because no, of... No, that's the wrong movie. Different movie. Okay. Uh, and, and he uh, was blind at one point and so. um, <laughs> woke up and, and he could see and he thought she was Mrs. Claus. And uh, they started dancing to Jingle Bells and they realized, hey, I can really dance. And so then they lived happily ever after. No. Um, so she's an interior designer, and he is a contractor from a small town. And they were dance partners, and they were together. But then they broke up. But then she came home to take care of this project and, like, get it really good. And then they danced. Yeah, yeah uh, same thing. All right, last one. Uh, my Christmas Guide. Okay, so he's <laughs> blind, and... That's the, the, the service dog, uh, and she uh, also was in a big city, uh, and she was uh, a baker there, and she came back home to take care of her dad's bakery after he passed away, and this guy stumbled in, pun intended, uh, oh. and um, she pet the dog because he got off the leash, and uh, next thing you know, they fell in love and uh, lived happily ever after. That is another Hallmark movie that I know he's watched. That's how he knew that one not so true. well. That's not true. Um, Tell me this is what it is. Mm, no. So he was a professor and was struck blind and needed a new um, a, a training dog. A dog. And she was the trainer for the dog. Oh. And helped him open his heart back up All again. right, that's enough. Hallmark movies are so <laughs> junk. Um, they are so not. they are not good love stories. The best love stories, uh, Braveheart. Uh, Gladiator, no. Avengers Endgame, no. Red Dawn, right? Those what? are the best love stories. Why are they the best love stories? Because they emphasize sacrificial love, okay? And that is a model taken directly out of the Bible with Jesus' sacrificial love for us. And that's what we're going to dive into today. So let's stand and let's worship. Remember those walls we call sin and shame. They were like prisons that we couldn't escape. But he came and he died and he rose. Those walls are rubble now. Remember those giants we call death and grace. They were 
what love looks like. It gives us so much. Hard to see, only you can say. 
Have a seat. Love has the power to change someone's day, to lift someone's heart, to comfort someone's soul. Love is a language that everybody speaks, men and women, young and old, rich and poor. Love is the character of God, who loved us before we loved him 
who loved us so we could love one another. Love is not just a feeling, it's a commitment. Not just an emotion, it's a decision. Love is about giving, not getting. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. This is the power of love. Before we begin this morning, I want to draw your attention to a couple ministries in this church that are doing some really cool things. Every Tuesday night, we have a group that meets here in this building called Celebrate Recovery, designed for people who are struggling with addictions or past hurts or hang-ups. Over the last couple months, they've baptized five people. We have another ministry called Embrace Grace uh, that is working with single mothers, whether they have children or whether they're expecting children. And over the last month, they've baptized one lady, although there's more than that if you look further back. They're doing incredible work, and I wanted you guys to be able to celebrate with us in that. And I think it's just really cool. Sometimes those decisions are happening in other places than right here, and so we miss out. But I wanted you guys to be able to see and celebrate with them in that. Let's start with this today. Have you ever revisited your vows, your marriage vows? For those of you who've been married, you look back, you stood up in front of everybody that you know and care most about, and you made vows to your spouse. Do you remember them? <laughs> it's been a while. I, I would guess that most of us haven't. I'm, quite frankly, I haven't. I've got them hanging in my bedroom. I don't know that I've paid much attention to them. I went back and looked at them. Do you promise to love her, comfort her, honor and keep her? How am I doing? You ever wondered that? Which of those do I do really well? I love her, honor her comfort and keep her? Which ones do I do well? Which ones am I prone to ignore? Which ones are the ones that I'm most likely to just blow off? Yesterday in this very room, a wonderful couple, Vern and Gail Huber, renewed their vows. They celebrated 50 years of marriage. That's pretty cool. Gail deserved every bit of that applause. If you don't know them, you should know that Vern is really old, and Gail is a saint for being married to him for 50 years. That's absolutely true. Do you suppose that they have been completely faithful in upkeeping those vows? Promise to love and to comfort, honor, and keep. I've been married almost 20 years. How am I doing? Would you be willing to let your spouse give you an honest evaluation of that? What would it look like if you gave a grade to your spouse? We're starting a series called Overcoming the Odds because quite frankly, the state of marriages is a little bit shaky right now. The rate of divorce is higher than it's ever been. Some places say 40%, some up to 50%. If you're married, it means that there's a decent chance you may not always be married. There's a rate of a thing called ABD, it stands for all but divorced, 
Some people don't choose to get divorced instead. They choose to just live together unhappily. And they may live in the same home. They may still share the same finances, but their relationship doesn't really exist. There's a growing trend in something called cohabitation where younger generations are looking at these patterns and these examples of of divorce and marriage, and what they're deciding is, let's just not even do that. Let's live together as if we're married. Let's, let's go through all the actions of marriage without actually getting married and having to deal with the legal consequences of what's going to happen when this relationship dissolves. And even if those three things don't necessarily define you or your marriage, every marriage could use a little bit of a tweak, right? Every marriage could do something better. Marriage seems to be one of the most difficult of relationships to do. Seems really, really hard. And yet it also seems like it's the one that we're least prepared for. It's the one that we really don't give a whole lot of thought to. Doc has a phrase that he uses from time. He says marriage is the gymnasium of the soul. I think that's why a lot of people don't like going there. (laughs) It's hard. I'll tell you where he got this quote here in a little bit. What we want to do is we want to look at God's design. We want to do a marriage series, and we want to see that even as we talk about these things, we're going, to, we're going to hold up the relationship between a husband and a wife, and we're going to talk in detail of that. But if you aren't a husband or a wife, it doesn't mean that what we're talking about won't be valuable to you. The same principles of relationship get translated into other relationships. The way you work out in this type of a gymnasium blesses all the other uh, relationships that you're going to find yourself in. And this is going to be difficult for some of you if you're unmarried Maybe you're divorced if you're widowed. For some of you, when we talk about marriage, we're not talking about something that's a theory. We're talking about something that was an experience and a painful one. But lean in and know that where we're going to go with this is going to have value for every other relationship that you have. And today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about love. Now, last week, Doc listed off some things that he loves. He mentioned his wife, mentioned his kids. He mentioned bacon. Is one word for love enough to explain all of these different loves? And I did the same thing. I stood right on the stage along with my wife, and we gave our lists of the things that were important to us, the things that we loved. And I listed God, and I listed my family, and I also listed football. Is that the same word? Is one word enough to explain all of these different things, to define all of these different kinds of loves? When we talk about marriage, even outside of that, when we talk about relationships, we have to start with a clear understanding of what the word love is and what it is that God has designed. Because it can be difficult to define. And so let's start with this. What is love and what isn't love? The Greek language is really helpful in this. I know sometimes listen to preachers, you don't love it whenever they start talking about Greek. But they get this better than we do. They had different words for love. The biggest, the first one is this word agape. And it means this, it's to subordinate one's own interests or pleasures, even their own personality, for the benefit of someone else. It's a submission of self. It's a submitting who you are. It's It's a loyal love. It's a committed kind of a love. It's the type of love where you will do what you don't want to do because you want to do it. I had to write it down because that's too confusing. 
It's the type of love where you're going to do what you don't want to do because you want to do it. That doesn't make sense to you unless you've had kids, right? Have you ever changed a diaper? It's something that you do that you don't really want to do, but you do it because you want to do it, right? There's a value to it. When you change your child's diaper, it's out of this loyal, agape type of a love. It's the same with doing the dishes. No one gets excited about that. If you do, there's something wrong with you. But it's wanting to do something that you don't want to do because you want to do it. It's that loyal, agape type of love. It's allowing your in-laws to visit. Some of you are sitting too close to your in-laws. You had to like, you couldn't respond to that one. It makes sense, right? This loyal, agape love, it's doing the things that you don't want to do because you want to do them. It's agape love, self-sacrificial love. There's other types of loves too. Doc loves bacon. I love tacos. We both love football teams from Texas. There's a Greek word for that. It's eros. It means passion. And oftentimes that word is used in a romantic sense, in a relational sense, in that kind of way, the passion of, of, of lovers. But it's bigger than that. It's all sorts of other ways that that plays out. There's a word uh, for, for friendship love. It's phileo. You're probably familiar with this one in places like Philadelphia, city of brotherly love, right? These words, while being love, fade on their own. Passion fades, friendship fades without agape. Agape is the thing that, that sustains. It's the self-sacrificing. You can have passion for someone, but if they don't ever think of anyone but themselves, eventually your passion for them will disappear. And if you don't ever think of them but only of yourself, eventually that passion will disappear. In friendship, you can have a great friend, but, but you probably know that selfish friend who's really hard to be friends with. And sometimes maybe you've been that friend. They fade without agape. Agape is this love that, that is a decision. It's a stubborn perseverance. It's this idea that you're going to subordinate your own interests, your own pleasures, even your own personality for the benefit of them, to build them up. And with agape, it enhances eros. It enhances phileo. It's a higher kind of love. It's a harder love. It's a difficult love. But when it's done well, it grows the other types of loves. With that background, I now want you to look into 1 Corinthians chapter 13 with me and see how Paul defines love. He says this. He says, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It's not proud. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. We hear this word love, and we go immediately to the emotion. We think of emotions, and that's, that's oftentimes how we describe it, oftentimes how we think about it, but it's not what Paul says. Pay attention to how he defines love, and then also recognize this, that Paul's writing this to a church we often hear these words read at a wedding ceremony. I've done it many times myself. And they're great words for a young couple that's getting married. But Paul writes them to a church. He writes them specifically to a church that lives in a culture that is obsessed with love. 
and all the ways that it's abused and misrepresented. So Paul begins teaching this church what real love is, and he uses this word agape. Every place you see love is this word agape. And it's not driven by emotions, but it's filled with actions. Look at it. Love is patient, that it's kind. It rejoices with the truth. It protects. It trusts. It hopes. It perseveres. These words hold with them actions. A loyal, agape type of a love requires action, which is good news for us because we can admit that we don't always feel like loving someone, don't we? I don't always feel like loving someone in the same way that I don't always feel like going to work. I don't always feel like getting up early. That's not even fair. I never feel like getting up early, right? There's all sorts of things I don't feel like doing. I don't want to pay my bills. I don't feel like being nice all the time. But we recognize that we should do those things because there's value to them. This kind of love that Paul's describing, this kind of love that works, that actually works in the context of a relationship, is not built off of emotions. It's not driven by emotions, but it's built off of actions. We don't always feel like loving, but agape love isn't a feeling, it's a choice. Maybe you've heard these words, maybe you've said them yourself. It's usually in the context of a divorce. I've heard this from men as they've said this to women, their wives, their ex-wives. They'll say, the truth is, I've never loved you. And it's supposed to be mean-spirited. It's supposed to be hurtful. And it's supposed to mean I never found you lovable, as if something's wrong with them. You were never worthy of my love. Those are lies, aren't they? Because the truth is you probably did love them at some point. And if you look back at Paul's list, if a man hasn't loved his wife, it doesn't say much about her. It says a whole lot more about him, doesn't it? Look back at his list. And then Jesus calls us to love the unlovable. In fact, Jesus even tells us that we should love our enemies. So a man who would look to his wife and say, I never loved you, it sounds like a man who's basically saying, I've never acted like Jesus. Saying, I'm not a good follower of Jesus. It's someone who's saying, basically, I'm a jerk. Jesus puts it this way in John 15. Logan alluded to it earlier. No one has greater love than the one who gives their life for their friends. It's that word agape. No one has greater agape love than the one who gives their life for their friends. Love is putting another above and before yourself. It's an action of self-sacrifice. It is what love is, this kind of love that works. Compare that to what Paul says love isn't, which is also valuable. And this love that works, look at what it isn't. It's not envy, it's not boasting, it's not proud, it's not rude, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it has no record of wrongs, it doesn't delight in evil. These words are all like poison to a relationship, aren't they? The complete opposite. If you look closely, one word summarizes up all of them. It's right there in the middle. In fact, I bolded it, made it a little bit larger for you to see it. If you like to write in your Bibles or underline or circle things, I'd highly encourage you to do something with that word right in the, in the middle, that word self-seeking, because that's the heart of this issue. Love is caring more about another person than you do yourself. The opposite of that is caring more about yourself than you do another person. It's self-seeking. 
constantly putting yourself over someone else. If love is putting another above and before yourself, then love isn't the pursuit of self-satisfaction, right? Now, by comparison, I think it's easier to love God. Compared to loving a human, I think it's much easier to love God, quite frankly, because he doesn't have all these problems that Paul's talking about. He's not boastful, he's not proud, he's not, he's not rude, he's not self-seeking, he doesn't have bad breath, he doesn't reward kindness with evil, he doesn't make braiding comments. I mean, he's kind of easy to love in that sense. Until you read this thing from a guy named Jesus who says that our love is measured by our love for other people. Our love for God is measured by our love for other people. And the interesting thing about marriage is we're using this kind of as an example is a marriage is where you choose who you get to love. There's some relationships in life you don't get to choose. You're just kind of stuck with who they are, right? But that's not marriage. Marriage, you get to choose who you want to love, which means that you can't love God if you aren't loving your spouse as well. You can't. And I think you can even make the suggestion that if you aren't loving your spouse well, you can't possibly love others well. My spouse may be difficult to love at times. I know that I'm a difficult spouse to love at times. But that's actually what marriage is for, to teach us how to love. And here's this great quote. It's from a guy named Gary Thomas. He says, use marriage as a practice court where you learn to accept another person and serve him or her. It's about marriage. This is where Doc gets his quote from. I like Doc's better. Marriage is this gymnasium of the soul. Now, I don't want to just define what love is or what it isn't, but I want you to see something really cool that God has designed, and we see it in the context of marriage. Paul tells us how to love one another in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We see the list of what to do and what not to do. But in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul sets up a really cool comparison. He sets up Jesus as this really neat example. It starts in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The foundation for love, the basis for love, this agape love. And again, this word, it's, it's all like in this passage in Ephesians, this word love is going to be agape every single time. It's the submission, the submissive type of a love. It's the submitting to your own passions and desires and cares. Not submitting to, but submitting them for the sake of someone else. Love means that it's not about me. It's caring more about the other person than I do about myself. And Paul says that when we love each other like that, it honors Jesus. That when we love each other like that, it gives Jesus reverence. And it works better. The very next thing Paul says, he says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. That's a fun verse, right? We don't like that word submit much, do we? It immediately causes some anxiety. Some walls go up. Don't really want to hear what Paul's saying here. You hear verses like this and you think of things like patriarchy and chauvinism. And that's probably fair at times. And I can't go too far into this today. I think we're going to deal with this a little bit more next week. But I want you, 
I'm going to at least just quickly address it, and I want you to see something. Paul, when he addresses this, when he calls this out, he doesn't just blindly ask us to submit without giving the example of Jesus. He sets Jesus up as an example. Think about Jesus' life. Jesus submits to the Father over and over and over again. In fact, the last night of his life before he's nailed to a cross, do you remember his prayer in the garden? And he's begging God, God, would you please give some other way? He knows the path. He knows the plan. He knows what he's been called to do, but he's not real thrilled about it. It's not what he wants. And so he's begging, asking God, could there be some other way for us to accomplish what you want, God, without me having to do this? And at the end of his prayer, he says, but not my will, yours be done. Do you think Jesus hates the word submission? It's a weird question, isn't it? Do you think that Jesus has any sort of adverse feelings about submission? Paul says that the church, Christ's bride, submits to Christ. Would you be comfortable if you were attending a church that didn't submit to Christ? Here at Cap City, do we have any authority, do we have any right to suggest that we should be leading this church and not Jesus? Is submission an ugly word there? Paul says a woman ought to submit to and respect her husband in the same way that she has submitted to and respected Jesus. And Paul feels so strongly about it that he repeats it. He says, now, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Before you get a little hung up on this, before you want to push back, I want to invite you, especially women in the room, instead of pushing back, I want you to lean forward and instead just eavesdrop on Paul and what he has to say to husbands. I think it might make you feel better. Verse 25. Paul says, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's that agape word, love, that we're seeing here. That loyal, committed, self-sacrificial love. And he says that we should love our wives in the same manner that Jesus loves the church. The church that he gave himself up for. Are you seeing it? Husbands, do you sacrifice yourself for your bride? Seriously. And I don't mean this in the sense like how men brag about the ways that they, you know, give themselves up for their wives. I don't want to hear about how you work hard to pay the bills. I want to talk about how she controls your schedule. I mean, do you really sacrifice? Does your wife get from you what she needs and what she deserves? Do you give yourself up for her? Jesus is the model. As a husband, do you even think that kind of love would work? You think that might make your marriage better or worse? And Paul goes on. He tells us what it is that she needs. And it's weird. It's not maybe what you would expect. But he says she needs to be made holy. That Jesus gives himself up for the church to make her holy. That's the example for us husbands, that we are giving ourselves up to make our wives holy. Is your wife more holy because of how you love her? And I'm not asking about how much she may be a saint for putting up with you. Is your wife closer to Jesus? 
Is she healthier in her relationship with Jesus? Is your wife more in love with Jesus because you have loved her in that direction? That's the standard. That's the model. That's the expectation. Paul goes on. He says that Jesus is cleansing her by the, by the, um, the washing with water through the word. Is your wife more pure because of you? Jesus does that for the church. Are you doing that for your wife? Is your wife becoming more like Jesus because you're loving her in that direction? Is your wife a better Jesus follower because of how you've loved her? Are you helping her be more pure? Verse 27, he says, and to present her to himself as a radiant church. The husband is to love his wife, not just because of the beauty that he finds in her, but to make her more beautiful. That's what Jesus does for the church, and that's the standard set before us. Are you loving your wife in a way that's making her more beautiful? It's a tough question. Is your wife ready to be presented to Jesus? Jesus is working with the church so that it can be presented to him. Are you working with your wife so that she can be presented to him? Are you loving her in a way that's making her ready to stand before her maker? Have you prepared her for that day? Through how you've loved her. Not through how you've controlled her. Not through how you've led her. Not through how you've directed her. Not through how you disciple her. Not through how you mentor her. Not through how you head as household her. But through how you love her. Jesus, or Paul says this of Jesus, he says that he presents the church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Husbands, have you protected your wife? Have you loved her in such a way that she has been protected from the evils of this world? Have you protected her heart so that it won't stray from you? Have you protected her heart so that it won't stray from Jesus? Have you loved your wife in such a way that her heart is safe and secure? That's the standard. Paul goes on, he says, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Paul says that is exactly what Jesus does for the church. He loves it as if it were his own body. And that is exactly what husbands ought to be doing for their wives, that we love them as if they were us ourselves. Paul goes on. He says, he who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and they care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. You feed and you care for your own body. You should be caring for your wife in the same kind of a way, that same kind of an earnestness. That a husband ought to see his wife as his own body worth constant daily care. A husband loving his wife is the best possible way that a husband can love himself. Do you buy that? Is that true? Paul goes back to Genesis chapter 2. The uniting of Adam and Eve, the very beginning, first marriage, and he says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And it feels like Paul's kind of taking us back and capping this whole thing off about what God has designed in marriage. 
Paul's saying if you're united to your wife as one body, when you love her, you love yourself. And he says this is a mystery. This is a profound mystery. And there's a sense in which we look at marriage and we think about this mystery of becoming one and what that looks like. And it's this hard, complex thing to understand. But Paul says, no, 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 no. I'm talking about Christ in the church. That's the example that is being set up for us, this mystery. The husband's position of head of household and head of, I'm sorry, the husband's position as head and his duty of sacrificial love and devoted care for his wife are an imperfect example of what Christ has done on our behalf. That one of the best ways the world can see what Jesus has done for the church is by watching a husband who has loved his wife. And that's the standard, husbands. That's what's set up in front of us. Paul finishes with this. He says, however, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself. The wife must respect her husband. Wives, you are called to submit to and respect your husband. It's true. Husbands, your, your wife's soul is in your hands. Your wife's soul is in your hands. And the way in which you love her impacts her eternity. It's this agape love that you're called to do for your wife to consistently subordinate your own interests, your own pleasures, and your own even personality for the benefit of her. That in everything you do, you're setting yourself aside to elevate and to support and put her up for success. What would happen in your marriage if you tried this? What do you think would happen? What changes would you make? You think your tone may change or the words that you use? You think how you spend your time or how your money might shift? What if we tried truly to agape love our wife? In Deuteronomy chapter 24, there's this really obscure verse, kind of out of nowhere. It doesn't have a whole lot to do for us specifically, but I think it shows us a really beautiful picture of something about God. Old Testament, it's written to the nation of Israel, talking about their young men and going off to war and that kind of stuff. But it says, if a man is recently married, he must not be sent to war or have any other duty laid on him. For one year, he's to be free to stay at home and bring happiness to the wife he has married. Husbands, and I think this is true for wives as well. Do you understand that your job is to bring happiness to each other? And that when you do, it pleases God? Can we celebrate this profound reality that making your spouse happy pleases God? It's incredible. Husbands, when you make your wife laugh, when you make your wife happy, you're bringing joy to God. You're pleasing him. Wife, when you plan an unforgettable sexual experience for your husband, it makes him happy and it pleases God. It's true. A husband who makes sacrifices so his wife can get the time that she needs makes his wife happy and it pleases God. A wife who writes words of encouragement to her husband makes her husband happy and it pleases God. It's love. It's real love. It's the highest form of love, this agape love that has been laid out for us. I want you to see something really, really cool. Again, from Gary Thomas, Sacred Marriage. 
He says Christianity involves believing certain things to be sure, but its herald, its hallmark, its glory is not merely in ascribing to certain intellectual truths. You understand what he's saying? We treat Christianity, we treat church, we treat our, our understanding of who God is as if it's just this simple mental thing that if we could just learn enough, if we could just know enough that somehow we would know God well enough that it would be something really, really cool. And we treat it like it's just this head knowledge experience. He says, no, the beauty of Christianity is in learning to love. That's what makes this come alive. That's what it looks like to follow Jesus. It's not learning more. It's not ascribing to more understanding. It's in learning to love. And there are few things in life that will test that as radically as does a marriage. If you want to learn how to love, if you want to learn how to love like God, if there's any part of you that wants to be a Jesus follower and love him, it starts probably in your marriage. And learning to love the way that he does, this agape love, this self-sacrificial love, this loyal love. Can you adopt this definition of love? And how would it shift your marriage? How would it shift your relationships? And this week, would you be willing to go to the gym and just spend some time working out that love? Trying to see if you can begin developing the ability to love better. What would that look like? If we go back to John chapter 15, Jesus said this, we quoted already once, Logan's already alluded to it. No one has greater love than the one who gives their life for their friends. No one has greater agape love than the one who sacrifices for their friends. It's what makes us come into this building every single week. We come together and we celebrate the love of a God who would sacrifice of himself by giving up his son. And that son would live a life of self-sacrifice for 30 years, over 30 years, ending on the cross for our behalf. That's why every single week we get up and we move to these tables that are around the room, these stations where we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We eat a little bit of bread, we drink a little bit of juice, and we remember what Jesus has done. And while we do that, there's these boxes there, they're offering boxes as a place where those of us who call Cap City home, where we give back, where we self-sacrifice back to the one who's given us so much, where we love and we honor him. And so we start by giving back those first parts. Sometimes we're so overwhelmed with what he's done for us that we give even more. And so we have these buckets on this tables. They're called generous buckets where we give even more just to bless people in this community. When we talk about sacrifice, when we talk about how to have a healthy marriage, when we talk about the relationship between a husband and a wife, these are not just simple things that have been made up or laid out and demanded of us. They have been exemplified by our God himself. And he calls us to imitate. He calls us to do the same for him. I want you to think about that as we go to the tables. Why don't you stand? Let's go to the tables.
showing us love.
Father, we, we believe that the love that you've given to us is something that we cannot hold inside of us anymore. In fact, if we thought it was the case, it really, we never got a real idea of what your love really was. Because you've shown us what sacrifice looks like. You've shown us what it means to be selfless. You've shown us what it means to think of others. So teach us how to do that today as we listen to your word. But Father, as we go out and put it into practice, let this world see that we don't look like them. And it's not something that just makes us weird. It makes us approachable. It makes us someone that they want to emulate. Because this is how you want to win the world. We want to be a church that loves. Father, help us to do this in every interaction that we have, every conversation that we have. Help us to love each other and to love this world as you love the world. Father, thank you so much for Jesus Christ. It's in his holy name that we pray. Amen. Now go love people, okay?